Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview biblical scholar Hector Avalos. If you look at the translation, that's another part of the illusion, because translations aren't there to tell you what the Bible says, but to hide what the Bible says, because they know that a lot of things are so absurd or distasteful to modern human beings that they have to whitewash them or sugarcoat them. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Hector Avalos is a professor of religious studies at Iowa State University and the author of several books about religion. Hector, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Hector, you were once a child evangelist. Would you share with us your faith journey? Yes, briefly. I was born in Mexico to a Pentecostal family. We were a minority then, surrounded by mostly Catholics. So we were on the leading edge of the Protestantization of Mexico and Latinos. I migrated to the U.S. because my grandmother was a living housekeeper and she needed company. We remained in the same church, the Church of God, and I became a child evangelist uh, at around the age of seven. Wow. And uh, I was a child faith healer and evangelist, and so... I preached in churches all around the Phoenix area, and somewhere around first year of high school, I decided I was going to be the greatest missionary for Christianity that ever lived. I was going to be the next uh, St. Paul, you know. Mm. I soon realized that in order to do that, I would have to learn the original languages of the Bible, because my interactions with Jehovah's Witnesses at that time were very crucial in showing me that I really didn't know that much about the Bible. Mm. And they would throw Greek at me, and I, I had no idea what they were talking about. They told me my Bible was mistranslated, and I could not respond because I didn't know Greek or Hebrews. I decided, okay, if I'm going to fight Jehovah's Witnesses and convert Jehovah's Witnesses and all other non-Christians to my view of the Bible, I have to learn the original languages. I have to study theology and all kinds of subjects. We were poor, and so I could not really afford to go to Hebrew school, which is what I really wanted to do first. So I mowed lawns and saved up money that way and decided if I can't go to Hebrew school, the next thing I'm going to do is to save up, buy a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, a Hebrew dictionary, and teach myself. And so I did. I, I taught myself Hebrew, Greek, wow, a whole bunch of languages, studied theology and so forth by the time I got out of high school. And by the time I got to college, I had kind of realized that all the evidence that I was looking at did not support my view. And so over, over a few years, you know, all through high school and up to the first year of college, I gradually came to the conclusion that my position, my Christian position, was no more defensible than, say, the Islamic position or the Hindu position. Uh, any argument I could muster, I could use the same rationales to support Islam or Right. Eventually, I realized that uh, none of my supernatural assumptions also were defensible. And so I realized I was what people would call an atheist. At that point, I had to also decide what to do with myself because I had amassed all this knowledge about the Bible and all the languages. So I decided that I would be a biblical archaeologist. So I completed my first year of college at Glendale Community College, then went to the University of Arizona. And there I got very ill, and I had to drop out due to a life-threatening illness. And so I did drop out, and people thought I would come back to Christianity because of this illness. You know. Well, I didn't. I realized at that point, I was about 20, that I no longer needed mythology to support me through life crises, that human beings support you through life crises. And medical science is what helped me get back. And when I got back to the university, I had to make up all that time, and I was nearly homeless at that point. I had to come back, live with my grandmother. I lost my job, everything. And all the languages that I have learned, in high school, teaching myself, 
came into play because then I went to professors that would say, would you give me your final exam in first-year Greek and give me your credit? And they said, well, if you pass it. And I did and then got credit for second-year Greek, got credit for Hebrew, got credit for a whole bunch of things like that. So finished my sophomore, junior, and senior years in three semesters. And so I was kind of back on track again. And one of the professors that was giving me the Hebrew exam, he and I talked and we decided I should be at the Harvard Divinity School at Harvard University where a top biblical scholarship was being done. And that's how I got there. So by the time I got to Harvard, I was already an atheist. But I could not be a biblical archaeologist because my health did not permit it. So I decided to go to the armchair biblical scholar route. Wow. Well, once you lost your faith in the supernatural, what did you think about your earlier childhood faith healing experiences? Well, I learned to explain it differently. I realized after doing a lot of research and having direct experience with why people say they're healed after prayer, mm -hmm. I realized that a lot of people were misinterpreting what they were feeling and what they were experiencing. A lot of people, for example, don't know enough about anatomy or medicine to even tell you what's wrong with them. So a lot of people would come back and tell me, uh, I have kidney problems. And so I would pray for them. And then, you know, a week later, they say, well, my kidney problem's gone. Well, what they had was a backache, and they interpreted a backache as a kidney problem. Mm. So if the backache goes away, then the kidney problem must be gone as well. Other people will say they're healed even when their symptoms persist. And that's because they're trained to say that God has healed them, because if they say they aren't, then they might really not be healed. So there's all kinds of social explanations as to why people say they're healed when they're not. Well, and if you don't get healed, maybe it means, you know, you didn't have enough faith or something bad like that. That's right. They would also explain that as if, if you're not healed, that, that's right, that you don't have enough faith. So there's all kinds of explanations like that. And so I also became a student of healthcare and have written a fair amount on uh, whether science can prove prayer. So all those interests are interrelated with my faith healing and my own experience with health. Mm. Well, let's talk about your 2005 book, Fighting Words, mm -hmm. The Origins of Religious Violence. You explain religious violence in terms of scarce resources, like an economist might. Well, I'm saying that all the instances of violence that I have ever seen have a scarce resource at their core. So if you think about it, anything that you deem to be scarce can create conflict, and that can extend from the smallest unit of human organization, like the family, up to the global scale. So for example, uh, on a family scale, if one member does not feel they're getting enough attention or love, then that's a scarce resource, and that can create conflict with the people you think have more of it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, brothers, siblings fight over that. In a couple, if one does not feel they're getting respect from the other, that may cause conflict because then that respect becomes a scarce resource. See? So when you move to the national scale, you can see justice as scarce. You can see water as scarce, especially out west. Political power can be scarce, and so if one party doesn't feel they have a White House, you know, that's the scarcity. On a global scale, it is energy that can be scarce, and so people may start to fight over oil supplies. Uh, nuclear energy can be scarce. Uh, nuclear weapons can be scarce. So, you know, right now, Iran might be trying to get them, and we're trying to stop them from getting them. So all violence that I ever see always revolves around a scarce resource that someone's trying to keep and someone else is trying to get it. Religion, I say, works the same way. Not all conflicts are caused by religion, but when religion does cause them, it's the same mechanism. Religion has caused a scarcity somewhere. And the scarcities that I studied in that book are four. One is access to divine communication. So if you think that God only reveals himself to a certain group or in a certain book, but not in every book, well, that's a scarce resource, you know.
second one is sacred space and the Holy Land is a prime example. Yeah. Because the value of the Holy Land is not really due to oil there. There is no oil in Israel. It's not due to large agricultural production. They really don't have much. The entire value of that space is created by religious belief, the belief that it is special. Yeah. Any economic or political value derived from the religious value, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Group privileging is another one. So if one group says, we have certain privileges because we belong to this religion and that you don't have, that becomes a scarce resource. The final one is salvation, which is kind of a long-term commodity like eternal life, <laughs> some long-term benefit. Eternal life is a long-term commodity. <laughs> yeah, a very long-term one. <laughs> and so those kind of benefits can also be as valuable as oil, if you believe they exist. So for example, on 9-11, Mohammed Atta, when he flung himself into the World Trade Center, he didn't care about his life. He wanted that eternal life, that paradise. So you can see that it, it can't become just as valuable as gold or anything you see. And that's the difference with religious scarcities. At least we can say oil exists and we can prove it's scarce or coal is scarce or whatever. But religious scarcities can never be proven to exist. And you end up dying for something that cannot be proven to exist or may not exist at all. And that's the difference. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's talk about your 2007 book, The End of Biblical Studies, which has Mm -hmm. gotten a lot of press. What's that about? The End of Biblical Studies argues that biblical studies as it is currently practiced should end. In other words, not that biblical studies should end, but as it is currently practiced. And the reason is that as it is currently practiced, biblical study is still functioning as an arm of the church. It is a religionist enterprise. It is permeated with religious and theological assumptions. It is not a completely secular field like, say, the history of Greece or the history of China or something like that. Mm-hmm. In biblical studies, there's always some apologetic angle that tries to defend the value and relevance of the Bible for the modern world. And uh, so I go through all the major fields of biblical studies, such as translation, archaeology, history, textual criticism, and then try to show you how scholars try to basically argue that their field still is important, even though their discoveries prove it's not that we pretty much have exhausted everything that can be known about the Bible, and unless there's something really radically new, we're not going to get much ahead. We're just repeating things. So why would you say that the Bible is not relevant to current life? Well, because uh, of a number of things. Number one, surveys show that a lot of Christians don't even know the Bible. Yeah. A sizable portion, 21% of Protestants, 33% of Catholics, never read the Bible. And a lot of people come back and say, well, what about the other 60 or 80%? And I say, well, the other 80% that do read it don't read much of it. If you go verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation, people are probably applying, you know, under 1% of the Bible to their lives. Now, that 1% that remains can still be problematic and troublesome for the rest of us. But the point is, in terms of the Bible, very few Christians even know it. And those that do apply it, apply very little of it. So it's like going to McDonald's and eating the sesame seeds and then throwing the rest of the hamburger away. You know, you could say McDonald's hamburgers aren't really relevant. They're the sesame seeds that are. But the discipline of biblical studies tries to create the illusion that it is still relevant. It's a marketing thing to me. They try to sell you that you really do need this book. 
And the whole industry of Bible publishing is based on the idea. This book is so important, you've got to have it. So new editions come out all the time, but really, if you look at the translations, that's another part of the illusion, because translations aren't there to tell you what the Bible says, but to hide what the Bible says, because they know that a lot of things are so absurd or distasteful to modern human beings that they have to whitewash them or sugarcoat them. The Good News Bible, for example, is a good example of that. It tries to, for example, in Luke 14:27, where Jesus said, you must hate your parents to follow me. It says, you must love them more than me to follow me. It what? It just completely reverses the inverse? Yes, it does. And if you look at many translations, they're doing it, but at different passages. For example, gender-neutral Bibles today are very yeah. big. So instead of saying men, passages say men and women, or what passages say sons and son and daughters, or and that's because our world is more gender egalitarian, but the Bible isn't. So in order to make it compatible with modern culture, they change it. Well, and even the NIV, which is an extremely popular translation, has a lot of those cosmetic mm -hmm. translations. Right. Yeah, more so the TNIV, the one that upset a lot of people because it went to a gender-neutral rendition as opposed to mm -hmm. the NIV. And so now the TNIV has made a mistake, apparently, and they're going to try to go back yep. to the NIV. So you can see how, really, marketing drives this, not accuracy. Oh, yeah. And my final point is, even if people say they're reading the Bible and applying it, my argument is that they're not reading the Bible and applying it because, first of all, the Bible doesn't really say what he thinks it is saying. Well, what about, uh, I don't know if you've read the NET Bible from Dallas Theological Seminary, but I've thought that one is really good. Uh, but I'm not a Bible scholar, so I can't really tell. But they have incredibly copious notes on the various uh, textual variants and different uh, translation problems. Well, yeah, they're still quite biased, though, once you start looking at how they deal with textual variants, because notes themselves are expressing a viewpoint. Well, I guess I'll just have to learn Greek and Hebrew now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can teach myself Greek and Hebrew in a couple years, though. So a big misunderstanding about your book is that you're saying that biblical studies should end completely, but what you're really saying is that the way it's practiced now is not serious. And if biblical studies is going to continue, it should be a secular field of study, just like Homeric studies or ancient Greece or history of China right. or whatever. That's right. So actually, a lot of people misunderstand that the title of my book is meant to be a double entendre, the end of biblical science in the sense of termination. That's one sense. The second sense is as purpose, the purpose of biblical studies. But I explain it very clearly in the final conclusion that what I mean are there are three scenarios. One is to end it completely. And I say, I, that's not what I mean. The second scenario is to say, keep it going as it is, but just admit that it's not a completely objective field like other histories. And the third scenario is the one that I favor is keep biblical studies, but do it in order to expose the way in which biblical studies has been hiding what the Bible says and privileging this book above others and so forth. I actually want more people to read the Bible, but what I mean is the original Bible, not something doctored to make it seem like it is. Well, is there anything that we who just aren't going to have the time to learn Hebrew and Greek can, can mm -hmm. read in English yeah. that's not so apologetic? Yeah, the end of the book of studies. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, there, is there a Bible translation that you can recommend? Yes, I sometimes recommend the Revised Standard Version, but it just depends on the issue. Each Bible translation can be pretty good on many things, but there always will be something that uh, they have a pet agenda on a good way to approach it is to have parallel Bibles. Get yourself a Bible that has like four or five translations on the same page. 
Well, and there's websites that do that as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, whatever we say about the current use of biblical studies, there are obviously many reasons why secular Bible scholarship is so rare. So mm -hmm. give me just a moment to read a quote from a Bible scholar, Jacques Berlinerblau, and I'll have you respond to it. He writes, quote, Assume for a moment that you are an atheist exegete. Now, please follow my instructions. Peruse the listings and job openings. Understand that your unique skills and talents are of no interest to those institutions listed there with words saint and holy and theological and seminary in their names. This leaves, per year, about two or three advertised posts in the biblical studies at religiously unchartered institutions of higher learning. Apply for those jobs. Get rejected. A few months later, learn that the position was filled by a graduate of a theological seminary. Realize that those on the search committee who made this choice all graduated from seminaries themselves. Curse the gods. End quote. Hector, do you think that about sums it up? No. <laughs> I think more his point is that you cannot be an openly atheist biblical scholar for the reasons he cites. But if you read my book, I have a whole chapter on the viability of biblical studies in secular academia. Well, in that chapter, I go through very detailed statistics on the job market and job openings. And the truth is, biblical studies is dying everywhere, and especially in public academia. So it doesn't really matter that you're secular or not. There aren't that many positions open in public academia. Now, it's true that if there are no secular scholars, you know, the jobs might be filled by theologically oriented people. However, the reason that biblical studies is dying in public academia, I would suggest, is because the rest of the faculty, not just the faculty in your department, but you have to reckon with the faculty in other departments who don't think that your department is secular enough. Mm -hmm. So they tend to look at religious studies as kind of, they don't belong here, they, they belong in a seminary. The way to survive in public is to make ourselves more secular not to make ourselves more religious. So it sounds like if you want biblical studies to just stay in the seminary, then fine, just make an apologetic exercise. But if right. you want to save biblical studies right. and make it a legitimate secular field of study, secularize it. That's right. All my experience with deans and administrators, they always think we're religious, and we're kind of sometimes a joke. Uh, for example, I'm at Iowa State University, which is, calls itself a university of science and technology. Well, a lot of people don't understand what we do. They really think we train pastors or something. So I think that the way to go is to make ourselves more secular in public academia and show the other faculty and the administrators that we're just as scientifically objective as any other field of history yeah. or social science and so forth. Well, changing subjects then, you once debated William Lane Craig, who of course is very well-known yes. evangelical uh -huh. intellectual. What did you think of that experience? Well, it's very difficult for people without knowledge of biblical studies to actually evaluate debate. So many things that he's saying have to be challenged on the basis of things like Aramaic and very fine points that most people are not going to understand. So debates like that have a problem in, first of all, trying to communicate to the audience what the problems with his side are. If you go, though, by how he's reacted to the debate, how his supporters have reacted to the debate, it doesn't seem like he did very well. And the reason I say that is because they constantly are complaining about my tactics. So if they are so confident that he won, why are they complaining about my tactics so much? And I would suggest it's because my tactics were more effective than they want to admit. 
And in particular, usually Dr. Craig uses, uh, you know, about four facts that he thinks are firmly established and then he makes inferences from them. About the resurrection. Right. One of them had to do with Mark 16. He was trying to date it to the time of the disciples, you know, to the actual time of the events, in other words. So he was trying to get that as close as he could to the actual event. And the way he was going to do that was by pointing out that the phrases used in that story were Aramaic and not just Aramaic, but Galilean Aramaic. And therefore, we can assume that they must come from that period. And so I challenged them on two counts. One is that the examples he gave of Aramaic actually could span the entire first millennium. They need not be restricted to the first century. So he was trying to pass off medieval Aramaic almost as though it were first century Aramaic. But the second thing was that he had made so many mistakes in his Aramaic in his book that I pointed them out to the audience. And when I pointed them out to the audience, he said that they were printing errors. Yeah, I remember that. So I knew at that point, I suspected that could not be the case because that particular book was published by Edwin Mellon, which only works with photo-ready copy, which means they're only photocopying what you give them. Printing errors are errors the printer makes, but they don't work with printing. They just photocopy. And so the errors have to be from the author. Mm. So I contacted Edwin Mellon class and asked him whether there could be such thing as printing errors when they publish whatever they say no. All errors are made by the author because all they do is photocopy what the author gives them. They don't retype that or anything like that. So everybody makes errors, you know, I make them. But it's one thing to make errors and another thing to lie about the errors. You know, as a Christian who values truth and all that, he couldn't say, I made them. Yeah. You know, he blamed the publisher. But really, those were more of the trivial points of the debate. I think those were the tactics he was complaining about that I pointed out his errors. Yeah. But really, the larger points were that he constantly was misrepresenting what the sources were saying, you know. He was passing off what could even be medieval Aramaic as first century Aramaic. He was misquoting Josephus, all kinds of things like that. Oh my goodness. Well, it, it helps to know the languages. <laughs> I gotta say, I love those debates where the stuff gets really technical from people yeah. who are really, really super experts in these things. Because I think you did a really good job of explaining what's going on there. Even if I can't verify it from my personal mm -hmm. knowledge, I understood what you were saying. And I thought that was really impressive for such a brief debate. Now, I also want to ask you about your work that you've done on Latino religious experience and practice, which mm -hmm. I think has been kind of an understudied field, considering right. how huge it is. Yep. What are some of the main findings about Latino religious experience and practice? Let me start by saying my field is U.S. Latino studies, not Latin American studies. Oh, okay. The main issue in the study of U.S. Latino religion is the massive shift among Latinos from Catholicism to Protestantism. Hmm. So that some are saying, you know, it's hundreds of thousands per year are shifting. You have some countries in Latin America who are approaching, you know, a quarter of the population, a third of the population as Protestant, whereas before they were, you know, under 5% to 0%. Yeah. So the question is, then, why is that happening? So a lot of my research has to do with trying to explain why that shift is taking place. Why is it taking place, do you think? There are a number of factors, and one of them is kind of analogous to cable television when it came in, in the, especially in the 1980s. I don't know if you remember the pre-cable days. But back in my day, say in the 60s and 70s, there were three major networks, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And everybody would watch one of those three. I've heard the legends. 
<laughs> of this age. Now, when cable came in, it, it went from three major channels to like hundreds, right? What happened is that fragmented the audience. The three major channels might have 90% of the audience or whoever wasn't watching PBS. Now they're down to, you know, on a good night, they might get 15%, but they never will get, you know, the 80% or 90% again. And that's because there are so many more options yeah. for people to see. And now with YouTube, yeah. that's further fragmenting, right? That's exactly what happened with Protestantism in Latin America. For the last 500 years, there was only one channel in Latin America. That was the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. When Protestantism came in, particularly it came in like cable, well, people no longer saw the Catholic Church as the only choice. Now they had a lot of Protestant groups as choices. And so a lot of the shift has come just because there were these other choices in Latin America. You know, churches started springing up, TV came in, and people started to see other religious programs. They they didn't have to go to church even. They could just see it on TV. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason. The other reason is what I would call the democratization of power. Mm. And that is to say, if you compare, say, the Catholic Church to especially Pentecostal churches, you will see that a person in a Pentecostal church can get farther ahead faster than one can get in the Catholic Church. Take priesthood. First of all, women can't be priests at all in the Catholic Church, right? Second of all, if you are a male and want to be a priest, it takes years and years and years of study to get there. In a Pentecostal church, you can technically go from a convert to a leader in the same day. Yeah. And that's because Pentecostals believe that the Holy Spirit comes into you and endues you with all the power you need to be an effective convert. And so you don't really need all that training. You know, the Holy Spirit will give it to you. And that tends to democratize power. So this democratization of power is another attraction that's leading people to Protestantism and away from Catholicism. Well, and what you're talking about is kind of a standard way to look at this in terms of religious markets where different religions and denominations are competing for adherence. And so the Protestants are just way out competing the Catholics uh, because they say, you know, you're a woman, no problem. You don't have any training, no problem. You don't want to get out of bed, no problem. Watch it on TV. And so they're just completely out competing the Catholics. The Catholics don't want to change their ways to compete for adherence. So yeah, hundreds of thousands of people are shifting to Protestantism. Yes, exactly. Well, you're actually pretty well known for a biblical scholar anyway, in the Latin world because of your book, Se Puede Saber Si Dios Existe? Can one yes. know if God exists? Yes. How did that go over? What's the reaction from the community? Well, it's hard to know because, you know, Latin America is so huge. Yeah. But I have gotten, for example, invitations to go speak in Peru. Still, I think that book is not as well disseminated as it could be. But I think it still remains the only book written by an academic biblical scholar who is an atheist in Latin America. I don't know of any other. And that covers systematically every argument against the existence of God and against the divine origin of the Bible. Well, and you also critique the usual arguments for the existence of God and for the divine origins of the Bible, which in my mind, at least, I haven't read it, but it kind of makes it the God delusion for Latin America, except it's probably way better because you actually know this stuff, whereas Dr. Yeah, so yeah, I go through the standard cosmological argument, teleological argument. And, and on and on. Probably still needs to be better marketed. Yeah. Well, all you need is to have Richard Dawkins write a, a brief <laughs> word and then, you know, put it out. Yeah, maybe, maybe in our next edition I will do that. Yeah. Get on some Latin American TV. That's right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Avalos, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me.